0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan,
1: Ryan, and Peter. Episode 218, recorded for July 5th, 2023. The Cloud Pod is a sucker and shifts left. Good evening, Ryan and Matthew. How are
2: you guys doing? Hello, I'm good. I'm doing well. How about you guys? Do
1: you have all of your appendages, or did you guys blow any off with fireworks? Did you keep it sane for 4th
2: of July? See, I have a little one. I was hoping for peace and quiet. So, did it didn't wake <laughs> um, the baby?
1: I mean, you live in New Jersey, so I can only imagine the spectacle that is fireworks in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. I'm boring, <laughs> so I was installing a floor. No, that's a, that's exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Here, no, I mean, we don't really get to shoot off fireworks here in this part of California because it's fire country, and so we don't we don't try to risk it if we can help it. So uh, we go we go where the fireworks are, like uh, Disneyland and places like that instead. So that's our solution to this problem so yeah we don't blow anything up either but we enjoy other people blowing things up safely so well uh i am back from my trip and i'll give you guys an update on that first but i think first of all we talk about ibm and ibm and their acquisition spree this time buying aptio uh or for those of you who are familiar with cloudability uh aptio owns cloudability which they bought a few years ago uh, this is for $4.6 billion in cash, five years after Vista Equity bought Aptio for $1.94 billion. Uh, Aptio was created in 2007 and notable as the first company Andreessen Horowitz invested in. Aptio offers cloud-based technology and hybrid business management software for managing businesses. In IT field. Technically, they, I think they invented the ITBM field, which IT business management. Uh, there's a quote here from IBM Chief Executive Arvind Krishna: Technology is a changing business at a rate and pace we've never seen before to capitalize on these changes it's essential to optimize investments to drive better business value and Aptio does just that Aptio's offerings combined with IBM's IT automation software and Watson X AI platform gives clients the most comprehensive approach to optimize and manage all their technology investments uh so yeah that's uh
3: interesting i guess <laughs> it, it's i mean i'm very surprised by it i mean way to go vista that's a great return on on that investment so that's good for them i am you know the last time i played with Aptio was very early in my cloud experience. And FTO was struggling to understand how to, to sort of port their methodologies into cloud. Like it worked really well in the data center and for IT shops for tracking assets and, and managing visibility into cost and financials there. But it really struggled with stuff like, you know, dynamically changing instance groups and, and that sort of thing. And so it uh, it was... And so, and it made sense when they bought Cloudability. So, I and I haven't played played with it since. So, it, I'm sure that they've improved the product, and they're pretty good in both spaces now. The IBM angle is weird, but I've never understood IBM's business strategy, so <laughs> <laughs> nothing new there.
2: Yeah, I mean, with Red Hat and what was it, Terminata Mix They also bought. You know, it's just they're definitely going for that business play. You know, in the larger enterprises, which makes sense for IBM, but where this is all fitting because i feel like that's not as you know unique of a market you know just feels kind of weird but it's ibm they've been around forever i hope they have an idea what they're doing
1: um well so based on the finops x vendor booth where i saw turbonomic owned by ibm uh nordcloud uh, FinOps owned by IBM and now Aptio owned by IBM I'm not sure Aptio understands what they're doing either <laughs> 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 um, so I, yeah it, it's a great idea that you think that but uh, I don't really know yeah. Uh I yeah. have some third degrees of separation from Aptio because uh, their co-founder and CEO of it uh, is good friends with one of my mentors and uh, you know, he's been the CEO pretty much since the company founded. and Then it got went public, and then got bought by private equity, and now got bought by ABM. So maybe he'll go retire now because <laughs> he's had to have made an absolute fortune that has to uh, on this company cash, yeah, with uh, that many <laughs> exits and, and opportunities to uh, get a lot of cash. So yeah, good luck to to Sunny, who's the CEO over there. Uh, I. I'm a, yeah, you know, he probably doesn't remember me, but I know him. Uh, we met a while back, but uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, this is a good segue into FinOps X in general because uh, that's where mm-hmm. I spent last week. Uh, you know, hanging yeah. out with all of my FinOps peoples, uh, and you know, I got to, listen to I got to meet a couple of listeners, which was great. It was nice to see and a friend of the show, Rob Martin, and I finally met in person.
0: Awesome. Uh, he's
1: a constant uh, Slack lurker for us and uh, has been a contributor to the show before. Uh, so it was great to hang out with him, and we had a couple beers and and liquor. Uh, it was very nice. Uh, so good to go. But, yeah, uh, you know, so the, the FinOps X Conference, if you're part of the FinOps Foundation, um, I will have to say is a fantastic uh, event. You know, the the energy was super positive. There's a lot of people super excited about FinOps. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I didn't realize how many people had come out of accounting or finance to come into FinOps. And so it's kind of an interesting technology meets financial accountant uh, worldview. So you get kind of both perspectives. In the sessions, as well as in the hallway conversations, I was having, um, you know, you'd ask like, "Well, it was your background?" And I was in, you know, I was in finance for years, and then I got really interested in this cloud thing, and it's a fun challenge, and so that was interesting. Uh, you know, the the vendor side of FinOps is interesting. I have realized that we are fully now at the end of Gen One FinOps tools, which is everyone has a dashboarding tool, everyone has a you know recommendation engine tool, and mm-hmm. an anomaly detection portion. Uh, you know, it's it funny because on day two of the keynote, that they basically had all of the sponsors give a two minute pitch on their products, and I literally saw the same dashboard just with different <laughs> UIs, uh, probably for every vendor. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I definitely think it's interesting. You know, I did have an opportunity to talk to some startups. Um, you know, they're on the floor, and, and you know, they're thinking about kind of the next generation of what that looks like, and you're really talking about bringing AI and LLM technology into FinOps, and how do you get, uh, you know, beyond the basics of it. So I think there's you know, I think we're at this kind of the cusp of the end of the Gen One era. That's all become commodity, which makes sense why Aptio is selling <laughs> to something like IBM because the growth market for it, cloudability is probably limited now. Um, and then I think you you'll kind of see the verge of you know how do these people take advantage of something like Watson? You know, if Watson exit IBM can help Aptio jump the jump to the next level. Uh, these other companies can take advantage of LLM models, especially you know again knowing the audience is very heavily accounting and finance people. They're not coders. So if they can go use natural language to go ask, you know, hey, what would happen if I changed all of my instance types from uh, N1 to N2 on Google? Or if I change from GP2 to GP3, what would that save me? And you can ask that question to your FinOps tool. I can see that being a really compelling use case and, and really something that would be kind of next generational. Um, so I, I suspect that we're in for a bunch of FinOps and you know capabilities coming out of you know these vendors as they try to figure out what their v2 is. Um, and potentially new startups that are going to come in and and be disruptive to the Gen One players because I think it's it's very commodity, which was my big takeaway from the conference in general. So it was good. Uh, it was a nice time. I definitely recommend going if you're in the phone space. Uh, I I think it was a great event, uh, really well high production volume. I mean, I felt like reinvent in some ways and how classy oh, wow. it was. You know, nice, uh, nice. audio was maybe a little weak in some of the breakout rooms, but you know that's a minor quibble. Uh, just because they use some cheap speakers, uh, the vendor. And it's probably the venue sounds. too, right? Like, you know, yeah, right exactly. Cause... And yeah, you know, it was at the Marriott Marquis in San Diego, which is a beautiful hotel. Take your family to as well, so your family can go up to the beach and you can go to the FinOps conference. So <laughs> they're going to be there again next year, so you'll have that opportunity.
3: Nice. Yeah, I, 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 I'm waiting for the first one of these players to really get the data enrichment, like AI generated data enrichment of your resources. Like the first person who cracks that. In a reliable, like useful fashion, I think it's going to change the way we do business because I think there's a lot of business decisions we make on incomplete data. And I think that once that data is more complete and you can turn something loose to do it at a very large scale, I think it's going to change a lot about what we think our businesses, you know, how they run, how healthy they are, what things cost. And it's going to make really simple decisions and technology choices and our. architecture choices be very visible right in terms of actions and it's sort of the holy grail and you know we're still largely in cloud trying to figure out our you know working our tagging strategy and enforcement and trying to get that data enriched from the generation but the minute we can outsource that it's gonna be amazing
2: yeah really that gen 2 stuff at this point you know i've looked at many of the players and you know they're all kind of like you said the same and even you know, the Azure console, or AWS console is getting there to catch up with a lot of those. I'm definitely not saying they're as good as them, but has 50 to 60%, depending on the console, you know, as good. So the person, like you said, that can crack that Gen 2 space, you know, is definitely something that I'm looking at for my day job and, you know, ready to recommend once we can really prove the value because like you said, just being able to say, hey, what if I move from A to B or B to C? You know, and really understand what the differences are and what the benefits going to be versus, I've sat down many times with many different spreadsheets, doing okay. We got this many instances and this many virtual machines, and if we switch them to these and do these savings plans, and and this may like well, what's the outcome? Yeah. So what's the story behind FinOps X? Because you know we were talking about it
3: as we were discussing short show titles. You know, what does the fox say for in FinOps X, which I love. And So like, yeah
1: yeah so you know there uh, was a merchandise booth where you could turn your little ticket in and get a t-shirt or a hat Uh, and one of the things you get was a fox and so i went through the whole conference going like i don't understand what this fox is about like does the finops foundation have a mascot that's a fox or whatever and then finally rob martin was able to fill me in like oh no it's it's finops x fin with f ops as an o with an x so that became fox and that's where that came from which is a stretch i i appreciate the effort but it you know it they should have FinOps X as a you know, Fox. It's a good idea.
3: I mean, if you already have foe, you got to figure out how to make. Yeah. I mean, like out. there's, I mean, there's not a lot of other options you got there.
1: Right? So, <laughs> uh, FOB doesn't really work out as well. Yeah, um, so, yeah. But Fox is great. So yeah. So uh, yeah, that was one of our, our rejected show titles, which you can only see mm-hmm. in our show notes. Uh, what mm-hmm. does the Fox say? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was a, a little interesting thing I learned while I was there. But, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, so uh, attendance wise, it was 1100 people, I think, roughly. Plus about a hundred, I think, uh, FinOps Foundation employees who are working in the event. They said last year it was in Austin. They had about four hundred people. So that you know, they've grown quite a bit. Uh, mm. and they'll probably grow a little bit more in San Diego next year. But uh, you know, this is gonna be a hot ticket, I think, especially after this mm. year. There's a lot of good positive momentum. You know, the foundation Slack channels been, you know, people shared photos and how much great it was. So I I suspect if you're interested in going, it did sell out a week before the conference uh, occurred uh do buy your tickets early next year and we'll of course remind you that it's coming up when they announce the dates next year as well, uh, you know, friends of yeah. the friends of the conference. And you know, we have many friends there who work there, JR and and Rob, etc. So uh definitely gonna keep an eye on what they're doing over there, of course, and uh, continue to share more detail. There was some interesting stuff um around personas as a big factor and you know FinOps X what they're doing. They did announce the focus. Um, well, I mean, they announced it last year, but Focus is really di- getting a lot of traction. Google and Azure said they're going to adopt the Focus format, which is their standardized billing um, data. Um, Amazon is not, you know, participating yet. Hopefully, they will in the future. Uh, the one thing I thought was interesting was how absent AWS was from this conference, considering how big they are. Talking about financial, you know, FinOps practices and how important they are. To not be there at the biggest thing around it sort of is a slap in the face of the foundation. I think in some way. So hopefully, they fix that. Uh, And they get their act together because I think they, they should be supporting this movement. I think it's a powerful thing. And uh, if Amazon people are listening, you know, get do better. You should be part of this.
3: Uh, Yeah. I'm a little disappointed with Amazon quite honestly, just because they, they were really big about FinOps when it was sort of only AWS. Um, But the minute it became more of a community and integration, AWS, AWS went real quiet. Yeah. Right. And they haven't made any changes to adopt standardized platforms or, or anything like that. They're, notoriously resistant to changing things like their cost and usage report. So it is sort of like, "Mm, you know, like I get it. They they have
2: some work to do.
1: No, I mean, it's impacting their growth numbers now and their bottom and top line. So, yeah, why would they want people to
3: do that? (laughs) Yeah, true, true. Fair point
2: showing people what they spend is probably not a good life choice and where they spend it.
3: I don't know. I mean, I, I that's a big selling point of the cloud to me. Like it's a huge advantage over running a workload to data center where it's so hard mm-hmm. to calculate the cost of things. Like I love having a bill. They're like, "Nope, costs this much. Exactly this."
1: Yeah. Well, and it, I think it drives good behaviors when you have the ability to show what these things cost. Yeah. Cuz it's, it's sort of a hidden cost in your data center that people don't really realize. So All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to AWS here. Uh, so they have added some new features to the application migration service, one of the features I have never used. <laughs> I've never used a service or ever tried to. I've used DMS uh, with mm-hmm. moderate success. Uh, but the three new features to the application migration service is a global view, which allows you to manage large-scale migrations across multiple accounts. This feature provides you both the visibility and the ability to perform specific actions on source servers, apps, and waves in different AWS accounts. Uh, some of those actions could be launching and testing uh, or a cutover of instances across this account, as well as monitoring the execution and migration across those accounts themselves. There's a new import and export from local disks, so you can use AMS to import your source environment inventory list that serves from a CSV file on your local disk. You can also export your source server inventory list to the same CSV file and download it to your local disk. Or you can continue to leverage those pesky S3 buckets for two steps. Uh, Then they also give you some additional post-launch actions, which adds four predefined post-launch actions to AMS, including configure time sync, validate your disk space, verify HTTPS response, and enable Amazon
3: Inspector. I think the reason why none of us have ever used this tool is because we don't actually like supporting cloud adoption in this way like this is very you know it's a lift and shift methodology and this just isn't a problem I have with lift and shift methodology right? like it's there's a lot of tools available and generally when I'm looking at cloud adoption even in a lift and shift scenario I'm trying to encourage like better CI and CD and deployment automation and those types of things and and I feel like this is sort of a cheat you know uh, around those things where you don't have that and so I, I get it um but I do worry about you know what happens day three after this after you use this tool but it's it's you know it's not fair since I've never used it
2: yeah I'm with you I mean it's great to lift and shift you know as I can imagine but you know I don't even even just leveraging the basics of the cloud thinking like hey just put it in an auto healing group so you have you know some backup if it goes down or anything along those lines you know that's what I look for and telling people to just move, I feel like just sets them up for failure in the future because as soon as, like you said, an AZ goes down or the underlying EBS volume, they're gonna lose everything. And or either that or you gotta have backups. And at that point, you're not actually leveraging the cloud. And honestly, you're probably better off in a data center at that point because you're gonna be paying 30 to 50% more for, to use, run it in the cloud and get none of the benefits. Yeah. Or very few of the benefits.
3: Yeah, I think it's you know it's one of those things like you turn all the knobs on right in the cloud and it just costs so much money. You turn all the knobs off and then you have an issue, right? It's if you're not applying critical thought and design and and, and doing things very intentionally, you, there's just so many um, gotchas. But you know it's it is sort of this thing because I like from an Amazon perspective, like you have to. I get why they have this tool and it's a great option. I think for people who are really new to cloud and and really like have no idea how to, especially their they're a huge monolithic, how this app, how it would possibly run in the cloud, but it sort of like goes against as, you know, someone who's been in a cloud center of excellence for
2: long enough. I'm like,
3: this is going to be a nightmare for someone. I feel bad.
2: Yeah. I mean, it can be good, I guess, for like, Hey, we got 80% of our Mm -hmm. environment. We have this one legacy system that we just need to move. Mm -hmm you know, and that's, I guess, what this is good for, you know, we got these, you know, we got 85 or 90% of our data center moved. We got to get these last five to 10% out. Cool. Let's just use this. But also at that point, you're probably in VMware. So probably it's just the VMware import probably would work equally as well too. You know, so I I understand where they're going with this, but I just, this is not something I I push and I talk about.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I agree. I think we're all proponents of doing it right versus doing it fast um, (laughs) and expensive. So yeah, that's uh, one of those challenges. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, So if you are, you know, maybe you've no cloud, but you're trying to learn AI uh, this time around, if you're interested in learning more about, you know, LLMs or uh, large language models, images and music uh, LLMs, there's a new course from the deep and AWS teach you how to use LLMs to create your own AI generated content. This new course will cover topics such as how LLMs work, how to train one, how to use an LLM to create content, and how to evaluate the quality of AI-generated content. Or if you're using Google Workspaces, you just hit a button in your Google Docs and it makes content for you. It's kind of beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, overall, this is a a nice move in the right direction. They do teach you how to use uh, their new LMAI uh, API if you want to use Amazon's version of it, uh, although I haven't heard anybody talking about Amazon's version of LMAIs. So I don't know how good it is, and uh,
3: but you know, general knowledge is always good too. It's yeah, you know I think Amazon's not as you know at the forefront of press right, you know with Bard and ChatGPT sort of taking all the the win there. But I love this course, like I, I you know it's one of those things like I've, if I I w- i in my head I want to take this course. The reality is that I have no time, but uh, this is the type of course that you know would help you know, step-to-step in a career, right? As, as technology moves on, as, as, as the ecosystem is changing, if you don't keep up, like if we don't learn AI, like we are going to sort of not understand what goes on, right? In a couple of years, it's just going to be the, the nature of the business. Uh, It's going to be everywhere and ubiquitous and and have influence everywhere. And so like, I, I love these courses for getting into some of these things at the ground level. And especially when it's new, it'll be completely different in six months, but hopefully once you're you've got a base knowledge you can go along on that journey rather than just be surprised.
2: So so I like it. Yeah. It's much easier to stay up to date than, you know, say, okay, we're going to start learning the cloud today, you know, 15 years into the cloud becoming a thing where all of us had been in it for 10 years, Mm -hmm. you know, or longer. And so like seeing each piece grow on top of each other makes understanding, you know, I don't need to understand all the details of the, latest and greatest amazon service because i know how all the underlying principles work and it's like oh, okay they just solved this use case and you uh, these three pieces and it's much easier to understand so like you said if i you know was retired and had lots of money and <laughs> time i would totally go do this and have some fun on the side but you know in reality i just don't have the time right now in life yep
1: i mean it's sort of what happened to with big data in general was that i I didn't have the time mm-hmm. to go learn all the cool big data things in Hadoop really well. And as much as I'd like to learn it really, really well, uh, I still am at a very conversant level only <laughs> just because I haven't, you know, I've, I've witnessed it. I've seen it. I've seen it work. I just haven't had to build it myself with code. So I don't know how to, you know, some inner workings work. But uh, it's a problem with getting old and getting into leadership and management,
3: I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So true. I'm I'm just glad because you know the, there was such a glut in you know cloud expertise and you know it was hard to hire for so long and so I and I feel like we are bound to repeat that mistake if we don't invest in the training early and so this is it's good to see things like that where we're well, we won't know it because we're all dinosaurs we're stubborn and tired but uh, you know at least there'll be a a community that can nurse us along and answer questions for us when we yeah need
2: it. You say was, I still feel like there is a deficiency in people that understand the cloud. I mean, it's definitely better
1: than it was five years ago, you know, eight years ago. Like, you know, before it was like, you rarely see someone say cloud on their resume. Now, at least they say cloud on the resume. Now, do they know the cloud after that? That's a different problem. But at least they think they do. So at least we can have a conversation versus, well, I've never done the cloud. I don't know why you would. You know, some of those conversations we used to have all the time. Uh, well, AWS app Fabric improves application observability for SaaS applications. And when they say application observability, they really mean security visibility <laughs> in this particular case <laughs> in this article. But, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we don't mock the headline too much. Uh, as you know, many companies turn to SaaS applications for their enterprise apps to help all their employees and not have to manage pesky software. Uh, as SaaS app usage has expanded, there's an increasing need for solutions that can identify and address potential security threats to maintain uninterrupted business operations. Integration of SaaS apps with existing security tools requires many teams to build, manage, and maintain P2P integrations, or point-to-point. And in response to this, AWS is launching AWS App Fabric, a fully managed service that aggregates and normalizes security data across SaaS applications to improve observability and help reduce operational effort and cost with no integration work necessary. When SaaS apps are authorized and connected, AppFabric will ingest the data and normalize disparate security data, such as user activity logs. And this is accomplished using Open Cybersecurity Schema Framework an industry-standard schema and open-source project co-founded by AWS. So I don't know how actually industry-standard it is, but it's (laughs) open-source. The data is then enriched with user identifiers such as corporate email address. This reduces your security incident response time because you gain full visibility to user information for each incident, and you can ingest normalized and enriched data to your preferred security tool, which allows you to set common policies, standardized security alerts, and easily manage user access across multiple apps. This is available to you in North Virginia, Ireland, Tokyo, Uh, and eventual AWS regions of the future. Uh, A couple of things here. The security tools it can integrate with is logs.io, Netscope, NetWitness, Rapid7, and Splunk. And the SaaS apps that it supports is Asana, Jira, Dropbox, Google Workspaces, Microsoft 365, Microsoft 365 Audit Logs, Miro, Okta, Slack, Smartsheet, WebEx, Zendesk, and Zoom. And I'm sure many more SaaS companies are now looking at this as well which is great. They did mention in the article that they are going to be adding some generative AI capabilities to this, f- to this product in the future, which will allow you to uh, automatically perform tasks across applications in that future release, which I guess will be nice when it comes, but not here yet. So now now Amazon's in the vaporware AI stage where they announce things that will eventually come and maybe never at all.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I feel like everything now is like in our next version, we'll have chat GPT integration okay. or large language model. Like everything you see is just like, that's the next thing. So, yep.
1: well, I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, everyone was into NFTs and crypto stuff and web 3.0 and then that all failed. And then it was meta and meta universe and all that. And now we're into the, the chat GPT will save the world and the economy world. And so everyone's got to have features in that space. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Reading the blog post is just like a slew of Amazon services, you know, of like, oh, it integrates with this and encrypted with KMS. And like, it's amazing how they really stitch all the services together, to, you know, on the back end to really just create the solution for you. Yeah.
3: I mean, Amazon's been awesome at that for years, right? They've built the foundational apps out so that they can just leverage them to provide the value. Like, cause I, when I look at this and I go through, I'm like, this is, this is a problem. And this is a real problem that, you know, I've had to solve. And it's you know there's getting these it's all doable by hand right or by writing glue code to to put things in the right place and do all the things but having it sort of uh, more of a turnkey solution for for getting you know at this phase of its launch just basically security logs all in one place but um, but it normalizes the logs from all the different applications and it does a you know does all that for you where you know it, will make a security analyst's life a lot easier, right? Because these things are got consistent user IDs across, using the emails and, you know, the do they have Okta access and can that get to a Google workspace? And, you know, that's just a lot easier mission for, for a lot of these teams who have to, you know, maybe they can use it for, you know, uh, attestation of, you know, their whatever their compliance requirements are and that kind of thing. So it's, you know, I get it. I'm curious in cost, right? Because this is one of those things that can have a
1: huge
3: balloon cost, right? So, and it, you're not going to make any money by turning it on, right? Like you're I mean to have the ability to do forensic investigation. So <laughs> it's like, eh, careful.
1: So I was curious if any of you guys would kind of uh, call out the fact that they've already had this available to you for a while. <laughs> it's basically, this is, this is a subset of features that exist in EventBridge. You just have to, you know, targeted at highly targeted at security people who don't want to learn how to code. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's sort of my feeling about it is like, oh, so you took EventBridge and then you said, well, for the certain type of data set that security people care about, we're going to create this app fabric thing, which is a terrible name, by the way, for this feature. <laughs> uh, and yeah. that's how we're going to connect this thing. But, um, you know, so now we basically have Good. an opinionated version of what you already could have done with EventBridge, but now it's more limited because it only only do security things where EventBridge could do anything. And so, yeah, you get a product that you know pay three dollars per user per month, and uh, three dollars per or, oh, for up to thirty apps for three dollars, and then uh, an additional five cents for every additional app over the thirty. Uh, and then you know you get this limited access and value to it. So,
3: I mean, it's only if the the applications natively expose um, authentication options via eventing, right? Which
1: is well, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, you have to integrate. So, this is so you'd theory.
3: have to like it, you if you were using EventBridge. In a lot of cases, you'd have to write your own Lambda to go do a thing. But, Potentially you could, but I mean, yeah. these, par- these
1: companies are also partnering with them on EventBridge. So if you if these are your mm-hmm. SaaS apps today, they're already there. You could have done this already. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, security people like the easy button
2: sometimes. Mm-hmm. But that's what they've done with the data lakes oh, too. Yeah. There's the security yeah, data lake. There's yeah. the original data lake. I think there's a HIPAA data lake. I'm sure there's at least three other news announcements that I missed of. Yeah, so this
1: is this is where we get into verticalization that just drives me crazy because now we're, now we're verticalizing for teams and personas inside of the organization versus verticalizing for industries. Uh, and this
3: just sort of annoys me because it's already there. <laughs> you could have done this. You just didn't want to do the work. Maybe I wonder, like if you think about the Jira integration with EventBridge, like I don't trust that it would actually track user, like logging into Jira. Like it's definitely like a ticket, create ticket update, you know, that sort of thing. Like it's, I wonder if the devil's in the details if you're trying to really string these things together. Maybe like you always has an edge case, but uh, then again, you know you're probably going to have that scenario anyway with App Fabric as well, right? Because it's going to be mm-hmm. like, oh, except for that one thing that we don't have integration. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly.
0: Have you been waiting months and months to hire a new AWS GCP Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution: Falcon Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimised cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the Cloud Pods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right,
1: well, deploying state machines incrementally with versions and aliases now in Step Functions. Step Functions now supports versions and aliases which allow you to deploy state machines incrementally and manage multiple versions of your state machine versions, you can create a new version of your state machine without overriding the existing one. And with aliases, you can create an alias for a specific version of your state machine, or as we like to call it, latest. (laughs) Uh, This allows you to test changes to your state machine without affecting production traffic. And you can also use aliases to point to different versions of your state machine for different environments, such as development, staging, and production. So my
3: fellow podcast hosts were like, "Uh, we can get rid of this one, this isn't it. And I'm like, no, 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 this is super awesome, guys. And I realized how much of a nerd I
2: thought this already
3: existed. (laughs)
2: I just thought this no. already existed because lambdas under the hood, which is kind of what I've always used yeah. step functions with, you know, already mm-hmm. have that. So when we talked about it, I was I guess I was just surprised that it didn't. Yeah, exist. no, you, this you, is one of those I made the assumption. You always basically have to
3: destroy and replace, right? Like for for a state machine. So if you're adding adding a new like you know step function, or if you're adding a new you know logic or that kind of thing, it's always been a pain. So it's a, you know, step functions have been great for like launching a new a new workflow and through that. And then, but it's the, it's that second iteration that's always sort of like, oh. right. And sometimes depending on your state machine, it's the integration with all the different places and it can be kind of complicated to have mm-hmm. two of these things, you know, reading from the same S3 event or, or, you know, that kind of thing. It can, it just, it's been cumbersome and it's a required engineering to sort of set up and and maintain. And so this is fantastic because it allows very quickly to, you know, use a version and then fail back if it's, you know, like, it starts doing crazy things.
2: Um, I d- we also had Canary deployments, which I actually found really cool for this type of thing. If
3: Canary for step functions? That I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's really? did here. You clearly didn't read yeah, the whole article. No, I, read, right. I read the headline. <laughs> oh. Or I got so excited. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I did not see Canary. That, that is fantastic. Um, I don't, yeah. Like I don't even know how that would work, but um, it is, it is one of those things that I think step functions to me is just such an awesome way to, to stitch Lambda functions primarily together and have these, these workflows on the end. And, you know, I, I think Justin and I, you know, share a joke that everything is basically a forms and a workflow engine, like every application. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh and so it's like it's you know, I love kind of working on the bare bones scaffolding and step functions. This just makes it a little easier and to run
2: full time. And step functions outside of workflows, you know, or I guess it is a workflow still, but like I've done some pretty cool stuff with it where it's like, hey, go grab every file in S3, you know, from a you know, unique ID that they give it, you know, on a web page, mm-hmm. it pauses, you know, gets the ID back and just queries but like it fans out exponentially. And because there's like, this is one of those nuances I didn't know at the time, but like there's two kinds of step functions, I think like normal and express or something. If you do express, it like can fan out and you can double fan out and get like 1600 concurrent lambdas all processing stuff Mm -hmm. really quickly. And like returning it and passing up, you know, between the step functions is, it can get really Mm -hmm. powerful, really fast. And this is stuff that you can like, this was the, that example was something that was linked into like a Mm -hmm. web page. So like query data from S3 buckets before Athena existed. I think
3: I don't. I don't know.
2: I know you and I were looking at set that, Functions for
3: a, a workload forever ago, and it, because it didn't have that parallel fan out, we decided not to use it. But um, and so I, the minute that was announced as a feature, like I used it for the next project immediately because it's it is just r- amazing. Um, you know, you can then you hit account limits and run out of all kinds of Getting things but yeah because you know, it is really easy to get it into a bad scenario with that but uh yeah no i like this because it, it it'll make maintaining and testing and developing step functions much easier Great feature
1: yeah I'm, I'm excited for this one well uh, google apparently went on fourth of july holiday and, and released nothing other than uh, if you're in uh korea or you're in china they now have uh, support for you a 24 by 7 in your native language of mandarin chinese or korean so i guess that's a win for that region who doesn't listen to our podcast so moving on <laughs> <to> <laughs> azure <laughs> Uh, Azure virtual network encryption is now available to you customers can enable encryption traffic between virtual machines and virtual machine scale sets within the same virtual network and between regionally and globally peered virtual networks. This new feature enhances the existing encryption in transit capabilities of Azure. And this is those features that you have for your application isn't owned by you and you need to encrypt it for a security compliance reason. Uh And now you Uh have an option. So I appreciate that.
3: Yeah. Or that, that one thing that's still running on like a 2012 server and you can't move it off because it's no it's not supported on a more modern thing, but it comes up in the security audit every single time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's a problem solved. Now,
1: of course, those security audits all use operating system controls to figure out if the data is encrypted or not. So they, they won't know that the network is encrypted, oh. but you, know, you, can, you can still <laughs> mitigate that, I guess, otherwise. You, you can write the exception properly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And in true Microsoft fashion, it's in public preview, which means you have a little while till it's actually yeah. usable. I
1: mean, every most of Azure is in public preview. so
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much.
3: I mean, GCP does the same thing. I used to complain about AWS until I started using the. I mean, Amazon has previews that last, you know, like six yeah. months to a year for sure.
2: I mean, most of their initial releases, I feel like, are public previews that are, you know, GA that yeah. then they actually make usable because <laughs> they, and, they the price it so v, high. V.
1: Yeah, MVP. It was an MVP. Yeah. They're seeing what the adoption yeah. is. They'll make pivots, mm-hmm. but at least treat it like a production system initially, which is, you know, yeah. very rarely does. I mean, uh, more often, at least certainly, I guess, but uh, Amazon typically, when they do a preview thing, it's there's for a reason, because they actually don't know how the product's going to be used, and so they're really curious about feedback, and then there's everything else, which gets, you know, an MVP release. You're like, it's missing things like TLS encryption or, or encryption at rest, and you're like, what happened to Warner's Encrypt Everything, guys? <laughs> Uh, that's how you know it's an MVP product that they're launching. At least it's production-ish, which is
3: nice. Yeah, I feel like the the, the preview is really, uh, especially in GCP and Azure, is is a way to sort of not be bound by SLA, right? So if there's hundred yeah, yeah, percent, it's it's more contractual than it is about the product and you know the functionality of the app
2: and even. Even with that, if you talk to your your reps, you can get them to sometimes agree to meet what their future contractual agreements are if they're far enough down the line okay. that they're like, okay, we're releasing this in a few, like in a month, you know, or something like that. I've talked to a few people and they've done that with it with you know different small features that just you know we're still in public review.
3: You're smart. I just use it and then it'll be like, yeah, it'll be fine, and then it's not, and you're like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs>
1: I mean, now in the Google space though, we have to worry about you know something being in preview for years and then going general available and then get sold to Squarespace. So right, you know, we have that issue. <laughs> yeah, that was that was rough. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that last week while you were on your deathbed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> How painful that was. They did release a really terrible fact that uh, oh, good tells you basically nothing. So yeah, so if you're, yeah. you're so have questions about what they're doing, you can read
3: the fact and be confused still. So, no, no. I'm still mad. I'm not, It's too soon. Like, yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah, all too soon.
1: All right, let's move on to our cloud journey. Uh, we have another interesting article this week for our cloud journey. Um, this was written by uh, Richard Serriter, who is a director of Outbound Strategy Engagement at Google. Uh, and this is apparently the inaugural edition of the Modernization Imperative, also known as TMI, an acronym perfectly capturing their mission to enthusiastically overshare on all things tech. Uh, so this will be a blog post that we'll keep an eye on because uh, I'm excited to see what else they say. But the first one uh shifting left is for suckers shift down instead uh as for those of you who never heard shift down which i had not either i didn't know we had a term for this now shifting down is the process of moving testing to earlier stages of the software development life cycle shifting left is the process of integrating testing into the software development process uh, both shifting down and shifting left can help to improve the quality of your software and shifting down can help to identify and fix defects earlier which can save time and money and shifting left can help to improve communication and collaboration between developers and testers. Both shifting down and shifting left can help improve the overall quality of your software, allegedly. And really what they talk about when you get into the article is that shifting down means you're taking advantages of managed services. Which is sort oh. of ironic coming from Google, because they don't really have a lot of managed services. Uh, they do list them in the on the article here, so you know. Uh, GKE Autopilot, Cloud Build, yeah. PubSub, Firestore, Spanner, Cloud Storage, and Cloud Logging. Uh, and cloud events uh, they did miss cloud SQL, which i don't see on this list but uh you know still there you go empowerment through opinions as they say uh so yeah so this is a, this is an interesting idea so there is an overall kind of thread that you'll see on twitter occasionally or other subreddits uh if you're still using that uh that basically say you know shift left is failing us as an industry and uh it's not getting the value we want it's not increasing the productivity we want uh, and it's not really working. I don't agree with that. I think shift left is working if it's done right. I think there's a lot of companies just like DevOps uh, who do it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so I, I'm i intrigued mostly in this article about the idea of shift down, uh, which is something I advocate all the time about managed services or something I love. I love managed services because it, it takes away toil from my teams and allows us to focus on things that matter. Uh, and so I do encourage this capability uh, shifting down to your managed service to help ease your burden. But uh, shifting left, I still think has value. What do you guys think?
2: I mean, I think that both definitely have merits. I always say leverage the service because like you said, I don't want to deal with the toil. I don't want to manage my own SQL servers. I don't want to deal with managing my own queues you know, or anything like that. But to me, shifting left is also don't have a, you know, unless if you're integrating in, you know, months to a project, but like if you're starting a new project, it's doing that sprint zero work, as I call it, you know, that setting up your pipeline, setting up your Git repos, setting up the CI, the, the security tools and everything, doing all that at the beginning. That way you don't end up with code. And they're like, cool, six months into this project, three months, three weeks before we're going to go live, we're going to shift left now. That, that doesn't work. Like if you're going to do it, You got to do it from the beginning. And, you know, it's that whole, Hey, let's, you know, if you're going to do it later, it's spend the time, make sure you allocate the time on the engineering team to actually, you know, have the capacity to say, Hey, we're going to spend 20% of our time for the next couple sprints to clean up a lot of these, you know, high severities and all these other, you know, things that come in there. Just saying, Hey, we're going to shift left and we shove this thing in our pipeline and all it's going to do is piss people off.
3: I was laughing because as I was reading this, I'm like, wait, I thought that was shifting left, you know, a lot, you know, like it's a lot of these same ideas, you know, I, I was shifting down. I've been sort of tributing as part of a larger thing. It just goes to, you know, the industry and we get these terms that we can all define as individuals separately. And, and then we sort of talk about them like they're unified. but They're not. Right. It's, it is, uh, I do like, I, I like a lot of the points in this article. It's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he did some particular yeah. onus um, to the full stack engineer concept, which I sort of enjoy because he had a great analogy mm-hmm. for it, uh, you know, where he said basically, uh, you know, he had a story about as a kid, he his mom used to have him go out and start the car, which is really because she didn't want to warm it up. But, you know, he, he correlates that to, you know, as a 40 something year old, Uh, adult, frantically jabbing a self-checkout touchscreen, looking up the code for Seedless Grapes at the grocery store while enjoying the privilege of scanning and bagging its own produce, (laughs) but all you're really doing is shifting the work to a different level, and that's sort of a version of shift left. And then he goes into a mini rant about full-stack engineers, that there's basically only nine that actually exist on planet Earth because virtually nobody writes a front-end in React, sets up Kubernetes, configures a RabbitMQ instance, provisions space on the SAN, and lights up the the top-of-the-rack switch. And today's developers are asked to know web frameworks, architecture patterns, testing strategies, build systems, multiple types of databases, caches, automation tools, container orchestrators, L4 through L7, network concepts, SaaS APIs, monitoring systems, numerous public clouds, and, oh, maybe a little bit of machine learning, too. And, uh, you know, he just slips through dnd.com and says, it's Mm -hmm. pretty crazy what we're asking our junior and senior developers to do. In general. So,
3: so that, that's so, the one point of the article I don't agree with, right? I don't think anyone is expecting a single person to do all the things. But mm-hmm. I think that the important part to remember with a like full stack engineer and and that is, is don't define yourself in the boundaries, right? There's going to be, just like any engineering team, if you're solely focused on front end, there's people that are going to understand frameworks and technologies at, at different levels of experience. You know, you're going to have React experts and Rails experts and those things. So it's no different. But the difference is between full stack engineers is that you're not tossing anything over a wall, right? You're you may not know, but it's still on you to go figure it out, right? And so leverage your team, leverage your peers. You know, it's it's. I don't think we're expecting everyone to know these things and be experts in these things. But I the the idea that you have to know every technology front to end is is ridiculous we no one knows any technology you know like it's not a realistic thing
1: yeah i mean and that's where i think we we as practitioners you know we abstract some of this away from the developers all they have to do is configure a terraform module but they have to know that they need Mm -hmm. a terraform module first when so i think Mm -hmm. when we say you know i need a full stack dev it's it's someone that understands how this stuff all should work together and can you know maybe doesn't have the the detailed part of it as you said but you at know, least has an understanding that oh, I need a I need a message queue here, and I've used Rabbit in the past, or I don't understand the Rabbit API. And then how do I get access to that? Oh, well, there's a Terraform module. I can just plug it in. I put some values in, and I'm off to the races. Um, and that's the beauty of again, when you're shifting down. Apparently, in this article, going to managed services, I can get that Rabbit MQ instance from Amazon. <laughs> I can go mm-hmm. to Elasticache, and I can say like, I want memory. You know, I want Memcached, and I or I want Rabbit MQ, or I want Redis, and I just push a button, and now I have an API. But I still had to know I needed it. And I think mm-hmm. that's where I think the full stack piece comes into play is that I want them to be aware, not to the level of detail of like a practitioner, but at least awareness of at a, at a cognizant level that like, these are things that you need to worry about and you need to think about mm-hmm. these things to do them. I'm um, just like, I wouldn't, I mean, I know web frameworks. I don't know. Do I know every web framework inside and out? Hell no. But I at least understand what they are. And I basically understand the basic concepts of them. And so I can have a conversation with the developer on the web framework and I can understand what he's talking about. So we can talk the same language. I think that's where full stack dev comes into it. and I think. Just like we over we over bias on words and things and technology, you know, full stack dev, just like DevOps, just like some of these other things, um, you know, gets overly loaded over time. And people assume it means this thing at a very <sighs> crazy level, right? Like again, you would never have a full second journey who wouldn't know those things. I agree with his point on that. But I mm-hmm. agree with Brian on this also, that I would expect that developer to understand. Those are things that would need to happen, and that he would have to engage with the right services teams or the right Terraform modules to do those things.
3: Uh, as practitioners, we you know, there is a responsibility within your business, right, to provide that that ecosystem, provide that platform, and provide the support and the optimizations um, to do that. Right, you need to have a team that you know is developing those Terraform modules that are taking advantage of those managed services and understanding, you know, deep understanding of those interactions. So, so that can be a you know subject matter expert that can be centralized and that multiple teams can can leverage for that expertise. And that's you know that's it really is like it is an ideal that's hard to maintain. But I also feel like it's a, a lot about just the way we think about responsibilities and boundaries and 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 you know that's not my job, you know kind of mentalities. I, I think the full stack engineering has really broken that down in a way that I really truly like.
2: But that's also where, you know, whether like you said, it's a COE or you assign each team, you know, each development team to have a front end, back end, QA person, DevOps person, they all work together to create a solution that does work, you know, and that is tested and everything else. You know, that's kind of to me, a full stack engineer isn't a person, though I do want to know who these nine people are that he references. Um, but, you know, I would like to, you know, is really getting the team together to work together and to figure out, like you said, okay, we need, we have a front end, we need to send messages to the back end, cool, the front end needs to put, message, you know, messages here, the back end needs to read the messages and kind of work together. And that's where the team and the COE, you know, that can either help at a larger scale or if you're a small company where you associate these people together and they work together to create that proper solution. Yeah, I agree.
1: Any other points on this article you guys want to bring up?
2: As I, I
3: was just noticing at the end that they're, you know, the the whole article goes on and then at the bottom is a like more resources on this thing, and it's just a, a direct link to their certification page, which is sort of funny to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like that's not the same thing as resources. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think it's a lot of really good ideas. I think it's I think it is time that we sort of look at Shift Left and how Shift Left like has been applied and sort of derive the nuance and and learn from our mistakes, you know, but I also think that we're, we'll do the same thing just what we've always done it for all time. You know, so we'll start overloading shift down and, and sort of abusing that the same way, but as is the way.
2: (laughs) But it's just because companies want to say, well, we do DevOps Mm -hmm, because it's a mm -hmm. great way to hire people and to get people to do it. It's like, you're not doing DevOps. You're, you're still tossing stuff over the fence from one team to the other. And you're just expecting your ops team mm-hmm. to handle it. You use
3: called your app, ops team DevOps so that you can make them do development of things. Yeah, it's
2: so many times. Right. And, you know, it's when you actually you actually need to do what the thing is versus, you know, it's say, saying what you do versus, you know, actually just saying it. So, you know, if you're going to shift down, yeah, it makes sense to leverage managed services. If you're going to shift left. You know, do it at the beginning and spend the time to do it. Don't tack it on a you know, the ninety percentile. Or if you are gonna do it, say we're gonna add this in. And this is where a security department really needs to not just be the old school no departments, but say, Hey, we're looking at these tools. Come look at them with us. These are the three options that we're at. Hey, we're gonna implement this. We need to make sure that from top down, you know, from C level down, we know we're implementing this tool. It's gonna cost X Thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars to implement, depending on how large your thing is. And we need to actually leverage it versus saying, cool, we have this great checkbox here saying that we have a, we've shifted left, we have static code analysis built in, but doesn't actually run ever because it's not integrated into a pipeline. And cool, it runs and it goes to a security right. email that no one checks. You know, it's actually going to be integrating in all the entire way. Yeah. And performance of those things should be, you know, measured, right? Like, yeah, how many times is
3: yeah. is that analysis run? How many things is it finding? You know, what is the you know what is the improvement over time? You know that 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 is running like that all needs to be treated as as
2: a, a whole inclusive thing that demonstrates its success. And it's really the last part that you said. It's how are we improving over time? Are we actually taking the data from the tool and leveraging it? You know, if it's a static code analysis, are we reducing our, the amount of SQL injections? You know, are we reducing the amount of dependencies um, that are, you know, outdated and, you know, getting that to a more stable point and then blocking new dependencies going in? This might be something I've had to be fighting during my day job (laughs) recently, you know, getting those metrics to kind of make sense and to go forward in that route, you know, and whether it's static code analysis or anything else that you're implementing, it's doing it that way versus, you know, just saying, cool, we have this.
3: Yeah, you'll never be able to take checkbox security and then just make a developer check the box, right? That, yeah. that's and a lot of a lot of shift left is designed that way. It's like that's not that's not it. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, doesn't work. All right, well, we should
1: wrap up here. Have another fantastic week, and we'll see you next week here at the Cloud Pod. Great.
3: Bye, everybody. Thank you.
1: And that is the week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag theCloudPod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.